Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Women Arsecast on Arsblog.com September Mailbag Edition. Quite a lot to discuss since we did our August Mailbag discussion. What is there to discuss, you ask? Well, Arsenal have played six games. They've won all six of them. They've qualified for the Champions League group stages. They've beaten Chelsea at Emirates Stadium on the opening day of the WSL. And they signed a little-known player called Tobin Heath causing quite a lot of excitement. And for those that missed it, I recorded a podcast with um, journalists from Equalizer Soccer, Jeff Kasouf, about the signing of Tobin Heath. He kind of had the story before anyone else um, and he's followed Co- Tobin's career very, very closely. So a couple of weeks ago, I sat down with Jeff and just uh, we had a little bit of a chat about Tobin, but we will have more Tobin chat today, um, as well as your questions that you submitted on Twitter uh, to myself, Tim Stillman. Sorry, I should have introduced myself at the top. Uh, and with me today, as ever, my co-host, Alex Ibaceta. Alex, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Can't be mad about six wins in six games. So it's been worse before. So <laughs> Indeed, indeed. it's It's got that nice like honeymoon feel, period feeling to it when you get a new manager and you get some good results and you sign some big players and things like that. So that's why I was really keen to do a podcast at the moment, just to to capture that before everyone tears their ACL and we lose three games in a row and everyone wants the manager sacked. Can't wait um, for that. <laughs> <laughs> but before we dig into the mailbag and come to the listener questions, um, just I, I think three things we should really address um, at the top of the podcast that I wanted to, to ask you about, really. Um, first of all, just your initial impressions, I guess, of life under Jonas Eideval with six games, six wins. And, and to be honest, five of those games you definitely would have expected Arsenal to win I think but the game against Chelsea I think was a was a real um, I guess a landmark for this period of the season how how have you um, how have you viewed uh, life under Jonas so far and what are the things that you've kind of really picked out in this new era yeah as you, as you mentioned there kind of a lot of the games were kind of not I wouldn't say lesser opposition but it's those games that you would expect a team like Arsenal to win and obviously against Chelsea, that was kind of the biggest uh, test so far. Um, but I mean, obviously six six wins in six games isn't really bad at all. Um, it's mostly when you look at and look outside the results and you look at individual players and how they're thriving and you look at kind of the style of, because of, now six games later, you kind of have a very, very clear idea of what Jonas wants to do with the team. Um, and so far, I mean, I really love it. I I think I like a lot more of a attacking style football, but at the same time, it's it has to be very intelligent football, which I think Jonas is getting really, really well. Um, 
I think he's using the players that he has really well. He know he understands what Viv likes to do, and Viv isn't just a, a sitting number nine that sits in between the two center backs. You know, he understands that Viv likes the freedom. Viv likes to drop. She likes to get the ball and distribute, and he's kind of adjusted to that. Um, and then obviously he plays to the wingers, which I think Arsenal didn't do enough last season. If I'm being honest, there was a lot of times where I was frustrated that Arsenal didn't really switch the ball because one of their biggest strengths is their wingers. You know, when you have Beth Mead on one side, Caitlin Ford, now you have Nikita Paris, you know, Frida Manum can maybe get out there sometimes. Manu Abuchi likes to, you know, like phase out there sometimes. And then you have the fullbacks. And I think that was kind of our biggest strengths last season and we didn't use it as much as we probably should have. Um, but now you see, I think, Tim, in your piece for Arsblog, you mentioned how they switched the ball a lot quicker to that wing to exploit the spaces that they leave behind when when a person like Viv is moving around and kind of having on the defenders chase around her. Um, so I think so far, you know, the style of play is really, really good on the attacking aspect. Obviously, it's not perfect so far. You know, it's still only six games in the season and there's still a lot to correct and there's still a lot to settle into. Um, but so far, given the six games so far, you know, that big one against Chelsea, it's looking really, really positive. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I mean, it's difficult to disagree when, you, when you've when you won six games in a row. You know, Jonas talked a lot about bringing in more of a counter-pressing style and under Joe, it was very, um, you know, going backwards to go forwards and trying to draw opponents out. Whereas now it's clearly get the ball forward more quickly. And even if you don't get the pass right, pounce, counter-press. And I look at some of the attackers we've got and I looked, you know, before we started playing in the summer and I thought, I think we've got some forwards who can really do that in Beth, in Caitlin, in Nikita, Viv, got Jordan to come back, superb kind of pressing player. We've seen a bit of freedom on them now in an Arsenal shirt and physically just really, really up to the level in terms of that kind of counter press. And I've been really impressed with that. I, I think the thing I've liked the most um, from talking to Jonas, um, I, I asked him about, you know, against Reading, Arsenal opened the scoring from a corner with Jen Beattie and, that was a frustration for me last season or in the last couple of seasons that Arsenal didn't make more of those situations. When you've got players like Beth, Katie McCabe, Steph Catley, who can all deliver a great ball and you've got someone like Jen Beattie in the six-yard area, you should be creating more danger from set pieces. And I asked Jonas about that and because he'd said after, I think, the PSV game, he was asked about the goals, which were all nice goals in that game. And he said, yeah, but these are the goals you expect Arsenal to score. I want more goals from corners. I want more goals from crosses. I want more goals from counter-attacks. And I think that's what I like, the, the fact that he clearly has a style and a philosophy, but he's quite willing to be pragmatic. And we saw that, for example, in the last 20 minutes of the Chelsea game, when it got to 3-2 and the job was to defend, that's what happened. It was just, okay, that's fine. We're not, we're not going to... We're not going to try and pass out from the back during this period. We're not going to, we, we know that the game does not demand that. The game demands get it clear <laughs> for the last 15, 20 minutes. And they did that. And that's what I've been enthused about, the kind of adaptability. Um, so we've had, um, we're recording this on Tuesday, I believe. I'm losing track of the days of the week um, yeah, already. <laughs> and, uh, and the draw for the Champions League group stages was made on Monday and Arsenal have drawn Barcelona nice easy six points there for Arsenal uh, Hoffenheim from Germany um, and the Danish team uh, who I'm really sorry I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of uh, Kurz I think um, I'm certain I've got that completely wrong but 
um, you know, big kind of Champions League group. Uh, there's obviously a couple of really exciting glamour ties with Barcelona. Alex, obviously you have, um, I wouldn't say split loyalties, but shared loyalties between two of the teams in this group um, with your Barcelona hat on. What's, what's your reaction to this group and your impression of, of Arsenal's chances? Honestly, I'm just so excited. Um, I couldn't even, I would like to think that I'm going to go into this game as a neutral just because I love both teams so much. So I can't really commit to one side. I think I'm just going to try to enjoy it as much as I can as a football fan. And just, you know, from a football aspect of, you know, tactically, I think it's going to be a really interesting match to watch. Um, Barcelona, obviously probably the most tactical, intelligent teams that there is at the moment of women's football and then Arsenal have always been technically ahead um, than a lot of other teams I find especially in English football um, so I think in general it's just going to be it's going to be really really good matchup um, I'm certainly excited I think as much as I think that Barcelona would probably win I think I don't think it's it's going to be as clear as most people are probably expecting it to be um, particularly because, as you mentioned there, Tim, you know, the set pieces are really, really good for Arsenal. And then you have players like Gen B, you know, Leah Williamson, even Viv now who's scoring headers more and more, um, who can get into the box and kind of disturb them. And when you look at Barcelona's preseason, especially when they went to the States, I think it was out of six goals that they conceded, four of them were from set pieces. Um, and it's just been their struggle all along. So when you see little things like that, when you look at the weaknesses of Barcelona, you know, they're their fullbacks are pretty much the most, the weak, you know, when a team like Barcelona, when we say weakest, it's quite literally the weakest term. just because, yeah. yeah, just because everyone else is just so much um, higher than, but like their fullbacks are probably the weakest position on their team. And then when we're talking, when you have Beth Mead on the wing, when you have Nikit Paris on the wing, Caitlin Ford on the wing, you know, I think Arsenal can exploit a lot of the weaknesses that Barcelona have equally when you look at, Barcelona's midfield attack, you know, it's going to be a really big challenge for Arsenal because I don't think, I don't think they've come up against this opposition in a very, very long time. Um, I think that's anyone when they play Barcelona, you know, it's really rare to come up against an, an opposition like Barcelona and the way they're playing at the moment. Um, so, I mean, that that's all just to say that I'm really excited. And I think it should be, I think Arsenal fans should be a lot more excited than scared. Um mm. I think they should expect a really good game and not just Barcelona blowing over um, like they did against Chelsea in the Champions League final. Um, but yeah, it, it should be a good game just overall. I think, yeah, I think Arsenal fans should be really excited about this. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we've obviously, we've got some questions um, later in the show about that. Another, um, well, a couple of big things, I guess, have happened, but um, it probably says a lot about Vivian Miedema's quality. Um, that were kind of brushing over the fact that she reached 100 goals for Arsenal in just 110 games, uh, 97 starts. Um, of that, 149 on her right foot, 41 on her left foot, 10 with her head. I mean, you know, that's that's not bad, really. But It's very casual. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and all taken very casually. But the, the thing we really have to address, I think, um, and surprisingly, we have no questions about this. And I think it's just because the signing kind of happened and we haven't seen her since. But Tobin Heath at Arsenal, just on, um, let's start with the kind of the more visceral, emotional reaction, because it all happened so quickly as well. What was your kind of, what was your initial reaction when you heard that Arsenal were signing Tobin Heath? Um, shock. So that was, I was obviously, I was on holiday in Barcelona last week 
And the Tobin Heat signing was my first day in Barcelona. And I kind of promised myself that I would stay off Twitter and social media. Um, and then obviously I got WhatsApp messages about the Tobin news. And I was just like, I'm sorry, I need to go on Twitter right now. Just hold, please just give me like 10 seconds to like adjust myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, per- I personally, just outside of, of kind of journalism, everything, I've been a Tobin Heath fan since I was like 14, like very, very young. I've always loved Tobin Heath as a player. Um, I think she's one of the most interesting players to watch on the pitch. Um, you know, she has that Joga Bonito style. She has that swag on the ball. She'll, you know, she loves a good nutmeg. Um, and she's very good on dribbling. And I don't know, she's just a very, very entertaining player to watch. So personally, it was it was really, really big. Um, I'm just excited as a journalist and just to analyze everything that she does with Arsenal. But at the same time, when you look at how she'll fit in at Arsenal with the team that there is now, with the, you know, the Jonas kind of, the Jonas ball, that um, Ida ball, if you want to say, I think she'll fit in really, really nicely. And then you'll have, because honestly, like last season, it felt like Arsenal were that one team that didn't sign that big name and everyone was kind of worried about it. But I don't think Arsenal needed it. But obviously having Tobin Heath on your team is always going to be a big boost. Um, so obviously there's not really many many negatives that are going to get out of it. And I think the position that she plays is really beneficial for Arsenal. Um, when you put her up against, you know, next to Vivian Miedema, um, who I think they're going to really like play next to each other. And then you have Manu Ibuchi, who's also very, that that kind of like swagger, kind of very chill player on the on the ball. Um, so yeah, I mean, just excited. I mean, I feel like I'm saying that a lot, but I am I am really, really looking forward to seeing Tobin Heath in an Arsenal shirt. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because I went through, when I first heard about it, I mean, first of all, I was I was trying to get to the bottom of the story myself because I didn't have it. I didn't know. I was... I was told a couple of days before the deadline that Arsenal might do something on transfer deadline day. And it was, it was quite secretive. Usually when I get told that I get a name or a clue, but this was very under wraps. Obviously you were there as well. When I asked, I think it was Aaron Dantino after the Slavia Prague game, I asked him whether there was anyone coming in because I'd heard this and he kind of, he laughed it off. Um, But, uh, what probably didn't come across in the print was that he had quite a big grin on his face when I asked him. So I did think, oh, there must be something going on because this is all a bit quiet. Um, and at first I thought, but we've already got two right wingers in Nikita Paris and Beth Mead. But I think I've come round to the idea that A, like we're going to need a big squad this year with all the games and the lack of pre-season and everything. And the, the question I asked, Jonas, um, and I think I'll put it to you as well as, as someone who's followed her career really, really closely. I, I kind of said to Jonas, look, you, you didn't really have a gap here in the squad, but is it a case that if you can get Tobin Heath, you just get Tobin Heath and you don't really worry about, you know, the tactics? Well, not even the tactics, but, you know, you don't worry about like squad building. You don't like get up your own ass about like squad building. If if the opportunity to get someone like Tobin Heath is there, is, is that is that how you see it as well? I think I'll do it from both perspectives, kind of from a player and then as a coach slash team. You know, we saw Tobin Heath last season with Man United and she made a huge difference. I mean, when she got injured, um, Man United decreased a level of of kind of quality in front of goal when they lost Tobin Heath. I mean, Tobin Heath is just, it's very cliche to say, but again, that American mentality of just pushing forward, pushing forward, wanting to win everything and kind of nonstop. Um, So I think it is a case of, you know, no matter what, having a player like Tobin Heath on your team is going to just, it's going to be absolutely positive for, for on and off the pitch. Um, but then from the other side, you know, Tobin Heath is, 
she's an older player now. Um, she's a veteran. So I think coming to a team, like a very established team where, yeah, as you mentioned him, that there's very little gaps. I think she'll, she's mature enough and like at the end of her career now where she understands what the team needs and what's best for the team. And if she has to sit out on the bench for a little bit to have a, a more tactical, you know, change, whether it be Beth Mead to press higher or just like things like that, I think she'll accept that. And I think she'll understand that, especially because there is so many games to play for Arsenal. You know, she's definitely going to be playing in the Champions League now, but then you also have the Conti Cup, the FA Cup, then you have the league. Um, so I think she's also a player and an age at the moment where I think she's going to be more than understanding when it comes to kind of that team selection and and kind of filling in the gaps that aren't really there. And she kind of knows in the position that that she's in. So I think it'll be, I think it's a really, really good signing um, just because it is, you know, it's a player of Tobin Heath's level. And, and also, as I mentioned, you know, it's at the stage where she's not going to kick and shout if she's not playing the amount of minutes that maybe, you know, she is a starting player at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, you do have, established players at Arsenal who have already fit in under your owners, for example. Um, so I think it would be really good to see her play. Um, I think she's a very level-headed person um, just outside the pitch in order to kind of just like ease into that and understand everything. Yeah. And and I think like from Arsenal's point of view, she's still going to be going back to the States during international breaks and things like that. And Arsenal will be able to afford to look after her I think a little bit and maybe not play her like the other side of the international break and, and things like that. But I also think just to close on this subject that it's not, it it's, it's got value in terms of there are a couple of players there who have one year left on their contracts at Arsenal and are waiting to see what kind of ambition Arsenal has. And, and I do think signing someone like Tobin Heath says that you're an ambitious club and that's, that you know that's got a lot of value and another one of the things Jonas said to me was look keeping those players is bigger than any recruitment that we can do because if we lose Leah Williamson and Vivian Miedema and Jordan Nobbs next summer that's that's a rebuild and you don't want to be rebuilding um, every summer and you don't want and like trying to attract players when you've just lost players like that like that's very very difficult and I do think that Tobin Heath might be um, viewed as a little bit of hopefully a retainer signing, if that makes sense, like as someone who convinces some of those players who are possibly on the fence about committing their futures. But that will all kind of play out in in the fullness of time. Um, So why don't we take a break there? And when we come back after the break, we will respond to your questions that you put to us on Twitter. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Okay, welcome back to the Arsenal Women Ask Us September Mailbag Edition Part 2, where we will answer the questions that you put to us on Twitter using the hashtag at AWFC, sorry, hashtag AWFC Ask Us. Um, and quite a few themes have kind of come up in the questions, which is always kind of handy from a host perspective because it means I can kind of group them together. <laughs> um, and, and actually, one of the first things um, that, that really kind of came up was uh, the question of, I guess, back up to Vivian Miedema, which has been um, a real question during her whole time here, because when you've got a striker like that, it's really difficult to convince someone to come and be a backup to her. Um, and she's spoken, I think, recently about, you know, the fact that she played nearly every minute last season. I think we could see at the end of last season that, you know, that that had taken its toll. So um, variations on the question from at AWFC, please. Uh, from Mariek van Lith as well, at Mariek van Lith. Sorry, I've probably butchered the pronunciation of your name as well. Um, at J 15 and at Maroon Skittle, 19. Love that as a handle. Um, basically all asking variations of the question about what Arsenal can do as backup to Vivian Miedema and how they can manage rotating her um, and perhaps not having to play her in every minute of every game. And um, for example, uh, Mariak asks, um, what do you think is Beth as a backup number nine for Viv? Um, it's, it's, it's a fair question and one that really um, could have been asked at any point over the last two years, I think, but how do you see um, the backup to to that position so that so that hopefully we can manage Vivian Miedema um, a bit more carefully? Yeah, I think it's definitely possible. Um, ironically, I'm going to talk about Barcelona now because they do it really well. And I think their style of play fits Arsenal's style of play in terms of kind of the ball movement and kind of how they want their players to be positioned and the fluidity of, of movement sometimes. But when you look at them... Um, Sometimes Jenny Hermoso is obviously injured out for the start of the season. Asisia Oshwala was also injured. So they had no number nine, um, nor on the bench, nor, you know, anywhere. So what they did was kind of have Mariona, who usually plays on the left wing, start centrally as like a false nine kind of thing. But at the same time, she doesn't stay still. Um, so you'll have the left and right winger ending up in the middle or you'll have one of the midfielders ending up as the nine. So that that nine role kind of ends up up for grabs, first come, first serve on whoever wants to get in that position kind of. Obviously organized the mess, but essentially there was no... She was the central striker on paper and that would be kind of her starting position, but anyone can kind of move into that based on how the ball movement went and the position movement went. And potentially Jonas can... Exp- Explore that option considering with the players that he had obviously Beth is is a good option because she used to play number nine but then if you want her to start as a number nine then shift out into the wing and then have you know someone like Frida Manum come into the middle Caitlin Ford can also play that central striker position you know have Caitlin come into the nine Beth out on the wing and then have a player like Frida Manum go on the other wing you know it is completely possible um, so without you know the obvious choice of signing a backup player to Vivian Miedema, um, that could definitely be another option that maybe Jonas explores. And with his freedom of, as you mentioned, him his flexibility and of like tactics and rotation and informations and style of football, I could definitely see that being an option potentially. Maybe one day, just trying a new formation without a number nine at all. You know, just leave Viv on the bench and kind of figure it out with the players that you have in kind of that false nine kind of free load number nine position um, where players obviously need to know that they need to get in that position, but it is possible. Um, if you go watch maybe like, I think the last Barcelona game, yeah, you have winger starting as number nine and then you kind of adjust from that and it works well. 
Um, but obviously you need to have that organized in order that for that to work well. But I think the style playing the way, especially the way Joe um, kind of formed Arsenal into that possession style of football, I think it could work really well under Jonas's instructions. Um, so that would be kind of my biggest solution, sort of say, without actually signing a new player. Yeah, I, I think essentially I think he's got two options here and I'm, we've seen a bit of both of them. So obviously he rested Vivian Miedema for the first leg of the Slavia Prague game and it was Caitlin Ford that played up front and um, she had Nikita Paris and Beth Mead outside her and Caitlin, when she plays as a number nine, much more fixed, hold the ball up, fight for the ball, almost more traditional um, type number nine. I, I mean, in terms of her own goal scoring, I think she's probably more threatening coming off the wing, but she can do that kind of, you know, hold the ball up, bring others into play. And she did that against Slavia. The other option, because um, Viv came off for the last 25 minutes, I think, against Reading um, on Sunday. And, and I kept a close eye on what happened. And it was Beth and Nikita Paris swapping, uh, constantly swapping between the right wing and number nine, just in, just, based on where the ball was and who felt to go towards it. And, and so, and, and we know Nikita Paris has played, she has done that role. Um, you know, at Leon, she was Ada Hegerberg's backup essentially as a number nine, probably not her best position. She's probably better coming off the right, but it's an option. You can just start Caitlin and have a hold up player. You can start Nikita and have a playing on the shoulder player, or you can do that, that, that kind of fluid rotation, I think, that you spoke about, Alex. Um, and, and particularly, if you have a front three of, like, for example, Caitlin, Beth, Nikita Paris, none of them really needs to have a fixed position. Um, it, it takes some practice to do that, but I think that's probably the best avenue for Arsenal. Um, slightly different um, kind of slant with this question from the wonderfully named Oto, 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 Tobin, Oto, Tobin Aguna, uh, at Laguna Beach on Twitter. Is the club taking the right approach, re ticketing for the Emirates games? Would the optics of a fullish stadium be worth more? Um, and I think fullish stadium at Meadow Park be worth more than the gate revenue from less than 10,000 tickets at the Emirates. So Arsenal played Chelsea at the Emirates. We had um, an attendance of about 9,000, which is a lot more than can fit into Meadow Park but obviously for the Emirates is less than one-sixth of the capacity. Where do you stand um, on this? I think it's a great idea to play at the Emirates. Um, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think obviously when you look at the atmosphere there and if the players start getting used to that, then you can kind of bring that home advantage onto there. And if you get enough people into there, it will definitely bring the vibe. But I think my biggest, my biggest criticism to the opening weekend in general, not just Arsenal at the Emirates, but just the opening weekend, all the WSL that played in big stadiums with the, the marketing was awful. Um, you know, you don't even know that a woman's game is happening at these big stadiums because there's not really, unless you're kind of involved in our own little woman's football world, you don't really know. And that's not the whole point. The whole point is to, you know, we've women's football world fills up Borenwood without any problem on a big stage. But when you go to, the Emirates, which is, as you mentioned, Tim, you know, it's not even like, it's a very, very small percentage of the people that we get at Borenwood versus the Emirates. You need to expand the marketing and you need to, the whole point of it is to bring more people into women's football and bring more people into those particular matches. And I think the marketing was just really, really not enough for what it was. Cause then you look at last season where you had 25, 20 plus K people in the opening weekend on the WSL. And this year we didn't get any numbers like that. Um, 
So I think it could be really, really beneficial. Obviously, you know, Bournemouth is really, really special and the vibe, the home advantage is just there for Arsenal. You know, it's the comfort, it's how close people are to the pitch. Um, you know, it's it's unbeatable when you go to a big stadium like the Emirates, but at the same time, when you have 10K plus, you know, Arsenal fans chanting at you when you're playing a team like Barcelona, for example, you know, that's unbeatable and it's, it's going to change a lot. But I just think if that's going to happen continuously, then the marketing and kind of the the reach to people outside of women's football world, like our little bubble, as I like to call it, um, it needs to be a lot better and it needs to be more committed to bringing a lot more people because, yeah, you know, when you have 9K people at the Emirates Stadium, it kind of defeats the purpose of that atmosphere and what you want to get out of playing at a big stadium. Yeah, I um, I I think on this one initially I was really disappointed with the level of ticket sales. I do think there are some mitigating factors on this occasion. So last time when they did like lots of games to open the season in these big stadiums, they were able to announce it months in advance and really do a big run up. But because of COVID, a lot of these weren't confirmed until about three weeks before. So there wasn't that massive lead in time. I do think there is still a little bit of um, kind of um, COVID hesitancy um, around return to football. Arsenal men's first home game of the season against Chelsea didn't sell out. There are a few thousand unsold tickets for that. And, um, and maybe we take for granted the extent to which people are really itching to get back to football stadiums. I, th- I think there are some people who aren't. But I actually, I kind of came away, I don't know to what extent, it's at least to some extent just the way the game went against Chelsea. I think it was kind of perfect in terms of Arsenal won, they played well, but there was a lot of tension in that last 20 minutes hanging on to the lead. And the way they sold the tickets block by block so that the fans were close together and it was in front of the camera as well, which again was done intentionally. They sold all the blocks near the cameras. And some of the, I think some of the images that come away, like that brilliant image that um, one of the girls from Girls on the Ball took of Beth, Mate, Beth Mead wheeling away in celebration with the crowd you know, in front of her. I, I do think that there is a value in that. And I do think that um, I think it was a really worthwhile exercise because, first of all, you had like 9,000 really engaged fans. I was at that Spurs game a couple of years ago that has the WSL record attendance of 38,000. Now, granted, most of them were Spurs fans and they lost, but I got a lot of sense of people looking at their phones during the game, semi-engaged. Whereas in this game, I really got the sense that 9,000 people really engaged and invested in the result. And I do think that has a value. Obviously, though, that's that's result dependent. If Arsenal had lost to Chelsea, then you'd probably say that this was a little bit of a wasted exercise. Um, but I, I, think, I, I think they did take the right approach. The other thing they didn't do was give away loads of free tickets this time. Um, they charged, you know, 12 quid, six quid. And we've we've got to, I think, move away from the free tickets thing. I, I think getting 9,000 people who came away really thinking they'd seen something special probably has more value than 30,000 people, most of whom just went to look at the stadium or have a day out. So, And, and I'll be interested to see. We know there's going to be at least one more game at the Emirates this year. The, the Barcelona game, I think, might be another candidate as well. And it'd be interesting to see if that, attendance creeps up um, for those games. But it is it is a really interesting question that, that I don't think there's really a right answer to. Um, but maybe there's a right answer to this question, which comes from Belinda at Belinda underscore AWFC. Um, it's obviously still early into the season, but based on what you've seen from Arsenal playing under Jonas, 
Is there anything yet that you think they need to improve on? That's a bit hard. Um, obviously, since, as I mentioned, I was on holiday, so I haven't been able to see like a full match. I did stop mid, um, I was like walking up a hill. Um, so I got, I got to watch the last 30 minutes of the Chelsea Arsenal game. Um, we were, at, I, I felt at, like I was running up a hill during that when <laughs> my heart was going to be that is, that is fair. I watched kind of some of, I watched like 20 minutes of the first half. I was in a museum and I rushed through the museum, um, while my girlfriend was going through it. And I just kind of sat in the corner with my phone watching the game. So I have gotten a decent scope, not much of a scope as I would like to kind of go into these little details. But what I've seen so far is that, it's it's not much on what they need to improve on, but at the same time, you know, it is the start of the season and they do need to brush up on a few things, you know, get that sharpness of switching the ball, getting the ball up faster, that first pass when you get possession back. It's, it has to be sharp. It has to be smart. Um, so I think for me, just from what I've seen, it's not about improving. It's it, improving on like certain aspects. It's just improving as a whole because at the end of the day, it is the whole process of being under a new coach, getting new tactics. So I think once they kind of figure out individually and more it's more on the pitch uh, that the players need to figure out what they like and what they don't like and kind of build those relationships with each other um once they get that going i think it'll be a lot better and a lot smoother a lot more natural for them to play in that style that Jonas wants to play so i think it's more of, of that process of players individually getting a hold of what they like what they don't like and kind of communicating that to the teammates as well so everyone kind of goes through the whole process together um, so I think it's mostly that just players getting used to it and improving on those little things that would make this style of play with them just that much better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think there's a couple of things I'm keeping an eye on. One is um, obviously when you press high, you leave space in behind. And I'd be interested to see perhaps teams who are better on the ball um, than some of the teams we've played so far, um, with the exception of Chelsea, I think, or teams who are who are just better at counter-attacking. Um, sometimes the, the cupboard looks a little bit bare back there sometimes when a move breaks down. Um, and, and I think, I, I wonder if like faster centre halves, um, I think Leah's pretty quick along the ground, but, um, you know, Simone, Jen Beattie, Vicky Schnaderbeck, none of those players are, are lightning quick. And I do wonder if, um, you know, a, a quicker centre back in the future to kind of protect Arsenal against long balls and counters. I, I think that's something to keep an eye on. The only other thing I'm kind of keeping an eye on is Arsenal have gone wide a lot in the opening games. And that's that's made sense because we played teams that have clogged up the centre. But I hope that in like, I don't know, 10 games time, I'm not sitting here going, God, we always go out wide. We never go through the centre. Um, I, I hope we. I hope that's just a symptom of some of the teams we played, and not because we're neglecting that kind of that central zone, and that we're just kind of hitting crosses in. So, that, that's something I, I wouldn't say I'm worried about it, but it's just something I'm keeping an eye on at this point. Like I've got, I've got a little kind of thumbtack in that to come back to um, a little bit later. But speaking of things that that we might come back to a little bit later. Quite a few people, you know, people really not looking to dwell on this good feeling vibe at the moment. Um, but but I think like quite understandable, several people have asked various variations of this question. So um, uh, Ariella, Ariel, a, at, sorry, at Ariel AWFC, at Tony Adams FC, at Un underscore, underscore case underscore tet, at AWFC please, and Maddie at AWFC BX Mads all have asked variations of the same question about whether 
you know, Arsenal have obviously not really had a pre-season. Um, a lot of players at the Olympics come straight back into it. Um, lots of, and, and, you know, adapting to like a high press. And I think Emma Hayes said in her post-match press conference after the, after the Chelsea game, you know, she was asked whether the fact that Arsenal had already started their season had played into their hands. And she said, yes, which I think was fair enough. But then she said, you know, let's revisit this, you know, perhaps in the second half of the season. And so I, I guess the question from all of those kind of those tweeters is, do you see this kind of creeping up? Like things are good now, but is there a, like, is there a danger of fatigue and injuries setting in with no preseason? and with a new high-pressing style. And, and I guess, what can Arsenal do to try and negate that? I think it's definitely a concern, just naturally. As you mentioned, you know, we did have the the kind of early preseason with the Champions League getting into that match fitness way earlier than a lot of other teams. Um, I think it's, and the high-pressing, of course, demands a lot of, of players on the pitch. It's, you know, non-stop pressing. As soon as you lose the ball, you need to pounce and, that does get tiring and you do need to adjust your fitness levels for that. Um, so I think it is a natural concern. You know, I, I wouldn't be, I would be lying if I said I wasn't concerned, but obviously, you know, we won't really know until the second half of the season, then we'll come back to it. I think it's just a matter of Jonas being smart. I think that's, we just have to hope and, and pray that Jonas kind of is okay with rotating a lot of players. And I think, with the Champions League and, and realistically, if you want to go far in the Champions League, that depth and squad and that rotation is going to be crucial. Um, and I think, you know, when you have, as we mentioned, you know, to, a player like Tobin Heath, I think understands that she's not going to start every game every, over other players. So I think that rotation is going to be big. I think we have the quality of players to be comfortable with doing those rotations. You know, obviously Jordan Nobbs and Caitlin Ford are so injured. Um, you know, they still have some rotation. So when Caitlin Ford is on the bench, you know, you have Nikita Paris starting. Uh, or if you have Nikita Paris starting, you'll have Beth Mead on the bench. Like, it's really not a big deal to have that rotation. And hopefully you just have to, you just have to hope that everything is going to be okay. And there's no big injuries that are going to last a few months. Um, I think the depth and squad at the moment is good. Um, most importantly, the quality of the depth and squad is good. Um, so I think we can handle it well if we handle it smartly, but then obviously, you know, one or two injuries and you kind of lose that whole momentum of rotation and being able to freely do what you want to do with the players that you have. Um, so I'm sad to say it, but I think it's just going to fall into luck and the yeah. injuries that we have and just take it from there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there is a lot. It, it's usually, it's, it's like you say, the size of the injuries under Joe Arsenal, until his last season, Arsenal didn't get many soft tissue injuries under Joe. What happened was players got big knee injuries and that took three to four players out for like close to a year and that made the squad look smaller than it was. I think um, I think there's two things here. Jonas brings up unprompted constantly the need to rotate and, and he will do that. And I think one aspect, and I think a lot of us as Arsenal fans have probably got PTSD from the Joe here here from the amount of injuries um, and and the, the team was rotated under Joe, um, I think more than people realise. But one thing he didn't really do that I think Jonas really will is substitute in-game substitutions will be a big part of it. So if you look at his substitutions so far, those wide forwards rarely get 90 minutes. They're usually off after 60, 70. So it's very much, I think, a case, particularly with the wide forwards, of you will play 90 minutes, but across two games. You'll get 60 minutes of this game and you'll get 30 minutes of the next, roughly. 
So I think substitutions will form a really big part of it. I also think um, an, an element of pragmatism as well. So at half time in the Reading game, when Arsenal are three nil up and they're doing lots of counter pressing, I sat there and thought to myself, I hope this second half is a complete non-event and that we don't do the counter pressing and we just control the game. And I think we did, whether that was what Jonas told them to do or whether that was just the way it worked out, I'm not quite sure. But I think that element of pragmatism, when you're 3-0 up at half-time in a WSL game against the team below you, you, you don't have to go out and counter-press. As much as uh, as a new coach, you probably want to get that message across. I think the other thing is, is something I pick up talking both about the men's and the women's team, is this is an area that fans worry about a lot more than players and coaches do. Um, I think the kind of, particularly in women's football, the level the level of kind of sports science and the stuff that goes into looking after them is, is really, really huge. And I know uh, it sounds weird saying that as an Arsenal fan, given the last few years, but Arsenal have made a lot of appointments in this area over the last couple of months, new head of sports science in Gary Lewin, like new physio, physios, like they've really beefed up on that side. And so I, I, I gather from Jonas that they're, they're really, really aware of this. Um, obviously being aware of it and managing it effectively are two different things. But I, th- I think we'll see some things we didn't see under Joe. But broadly, I agree with you, Alex. A lot of it's luck and that's the end of it. And actually the last time Arsenal won the league, they got unlucky with injuries, but they still won it. Uh, they were still able to do it. And the, the reality is a couple of big injuries would stop Arsenal competing for the Champions League. It shouldn't stop them competing for the title because they still should beat most teams in this division. So... I, I see why the anxiety is there and I share it, but maybe not quite as much. Famous last words. Um, anyway, on to, well, I, I think we kind of covered, there's a question from Adam Sorter about um, how excited you are to be playing Barcelona. I think we covered that, but on a similar vein, um, I really like this question from Andrew Blair, who is at Yenar, at Yenar whatever on Twitter. Um, and I think this is a really good question that I'm really interested in. And it says, do you view playing Barca as a real gauge for where Arsenal women are right now? How excited are you? Uh, no, sorry. That was a, with a new coach and a few new players, I see it as an exciting test to see what this team can produce against the very best. I agree. I think it's, you know, you don't get the opportunity to play against, at the moment, probably the best team in the world. Um, you don't get that opportunity to to play, especially with Arsenal, who hasn't played in the Champions League last season. You know, they've been confined to just English opposition. Um, Champions League, obviously playing against foreign opposition is a big opportunity just for that. And then you play against a team like Barcelona and especially for Arsenal, who I think should definitely get one of the top two spots. Um, So they're kind of playing against the best team in the world without having to compromise their qualifications to the next round if that makes sense so I think it's I think Arsenal should just cherish the opportunity to be honest you know at the end of the day yes you want to win but like I said you know even if they lose both I think they should still clinch that second place spot um easily so I mean hopefully they do (laughs) that's really hopeful it's just yeah um so I think it's a really good opportunity you know with the Champions League in mind but without it as well to as you know as a question mentioned the question mentioned to kind of gauge where they're at on a outside of WSL perspective of kind of know where they are in terms of player wise, tactically wise, you know, coaching wise, the effort, the kind of everything on and off the pitch that go into the preparation of the match. 
I think it will be a really, really good gauge to kind of not, I don't think for us, I don't think for the fans, I don't think for, for kind of us to analyze that. I think it's more for the players and, and for them to see where they are and kind of maybe get confidence, maybe get motivation, whatever they want to get out of it. But I think it's more for them to kind of, you know, have the opportunity to play against, you know, Alexia Potea is the best player in Europe at the moment. Um, I think it's it's a really good opportunity. And then, yeah, looking from a fan perspective, from our perspective, I think it's just an amazing match of football to watch, you know, whether you're an Arsenal fan or whether you're a Barcelona fan or whether you're any fan of football, I think it's going to be one of the most entertaining matches um, that there is in the group stage, um, mostly just because of the football and the style of playing the players that, I mean, you're going to see, you know, Mapi Leon and Irán Paredes going up against Vivian Mira, Mira single-handedly. You're going to have Leo Williamson trying to stop Alexia Puteas from running into the box. You know, the matchups are going to be incredible. The, the football is going to be amazing and it's just going to be fun. But yeah, I think it's just what Arsenal want to take. I think Arsenal get to play this game without any pressure yep. um, of kind of securing that second place spot. So I think they just have to go out and enjoy it. Yeah, I completely agree. I Because... I, 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 I like the question because this is exactly what I thought about the draw. I, I kind of thought whoever we get out of pot one, we're probably looking at finishing second in the group, maybe Bayern and PSG. We could have, you know, competed a bit more like Barca. I, I'm not expecting any points from those two games, but like they're the best club in Europe by far at the moment. So they are the benchmark. And I, I do think it will be really useful, really interesting um, I, I guess there's an anxiety there about, um, again, talking about trying to convince players to stay. And, you know, if we don't compete in those games, then that perhaps, you know, that puts the club in a negative light maybe and says, well, this is how far we are away. But, I, you know, I, I think if Arsenal can compete in those games um, and they can say, OK, we, we know we're not the best team in Europe, but this is the standard and, you know, we, we just beat Chelsea, who are Champions League finalists, probably the second best team in Europe, arguably, um, at the moment. So that, I, I think, but in that domestic competition, it is kind of difficult because you're surrounded by those teams all the time. Whereas Barcelona, it is as simple as we're playing the best team around. We're playing them twice, home and away. So it's not going to be a one-off. So, if, you know, we played them in a friendly a couple of seasons ago and lost uh, 5-2 or 6-2. And we had loads of players unavailable, and it was it was a difficult game. Like we we knew Barca were better than us, but it was kind of difficult to gauge from that game. I think over the two games here, you'll get a really proper gauge. So that that's one of the reasons I'm excited about. Really, one of the many reasons I'm really excited about the draw. How, how about this then for um, a slightly different subject from Damian McBride at DP McBride. Where do you both stand on the issue of VAR in the women's game in light of recent incidents? So things like Beth Mead scoring against Chelsea when she was, um, you know, a yard offside. Uh, ha ha. Um, then you've got uh, Reading, you know, with a, a goal against Manchester United where it looks like the ball crossed the line. And then, of course, this weekend, Spurs scoring their winner against Man City via a slam dunk, basically, from Ro Rosella Ayan. So, um, lots of discussion about VAR, particularly with Sky Sports um, showing games now in England. So um, what, what practicalities aside, where does the balance lie between equality with the men's game versus keeping the matches fast moving for live spectators? What, what are your views on uh, VAR coming into the women's game eventually? I think this issue has to stay separately from the men's game, particularly just because we all know that all the WSL refs are part-time. 
I think mm-hmm. that's uh, that's the basis of everything, really. Um, you can't really have this argument without stating that because, you know, VAR was introduced in the men's game because full-time professional referees were making these mistakes and, you know, a lot of the coaches didn't like it, a lot of the, the players didn't like it, the fans didn't like it, so they had to take that extra step. But the extra step in the WSL at the moment isn't VAR, I don't think. I think the next step would be to fully professionalize the refs improve the quality of the refs. And then if you want to introduce VAR after you're not satisfied with the quality of the refs, go ahead. But I don't think the jump from part-time refs to VAR is kind of the one that you want to be doing in women's football. I do think that goal line technology would be kind of the basic of having technology in women's football, just because, you know, goal line technology, there's no, it either went over the line or it didn't, you know, there's no um, argument against that. And I think, it's really good. I think in general, you know, it's, I think goal line technology is probably one of the smartest technologies that have been introduced in football, because, you know, when you look at the the referees, how far they are outside of the goal, like even the on-pitch referee, they're going to be at the top of the penalty box probably. Um, and if you have like 10 players in the way, you're not going to be able to see it no matter what. So goal line technology, I think should be introduced in women's football um, professionally. Definitely. VAR, definitely not, especially at the moment. I think, yeah, as I think everyone, I think most people do agree that I think the investment needs to come in the actual referees at the WSL, fully professionalize them, train them and get that done first before you start thinking about like introducing VR. Cause then, then you have the argument also of all the cameras and small stadiums and women's football, where are they going to go? Um, you know, it's not the same as men's stadiums where you can put cameras wherever you want, basically in any point, um, you know, Boreham would, for example, doesn't have that many high places. You can see it on the matches where they stream it. Um, so I think VAR is definitely, it's very unnecessary in women's football at the moment. Uh, so that's kind of where I stand on that. Yeah, definitely. I, I think so. Why don't I, I answer this from a kind of more visceral fan perspective first? I hate VAR. Um, it's really, really, I, I was a big skeptic before it was introduced and I've really tried to not let it bother me and say, okay, it's here now. People want it. What you want and what everyone else wants are, are two different things. I hate it. I really hate it. It's really taken something very fundamental away from my enjoyment of football. When I watch men's football, um, it, it just really has. And it's increased my level of disillusionment um, with it. So I kind of hope selfishly that the women's game never has it because I see it as like, um, a kind of a bit of an oasis away from all of that. Um, I, I think you're right. Your point about developing the refs is absolutely right. That is the first step. Obviously, as you point out, there are logistical issues with the grounds being able to have it anyway. But the other logistical point with VAR in the women's game is that you've then got to train a load of other officials to use it. And we're already talking about like training referees just to be full time in the women's game. So um, PGMOL only just took over um, kind of overseeing refereeing in the WSL in April. So it's going to take a little while for some of those improvements to come in. And they're only just starting to get some of the facilities that, you know, Premier League and, and Football League referees get in England. So it's going to take a little while. Um, but as, yeah, on top of the actual technological logistics, you need three other officials. Um, if you're going to have a VAR, you need three VARs. And the pool in women's football of referees is not big anyway. And if you're already talking about a pool that's kind of undertrained, undernourished, and we might as well say it, not quite good enough, I don't see how where we pluck all these extra people from to operate VAR. 
and to train up on it and things like that. So I, I think it will come. It will come one day. Um, I do think it's, it's probably a few years away. I'd um, personally, even putting aside my personal distaste for it, I'd really like, there are ways in which I think women's football can forge a different path to men's football. And, and I really think not having VAR would be quite, could be quite a big selling point potentially um, because I don't think women's football should always mimic men's football personally. And I actually think it's it being technology, well, not technology free, but VAR free could be potentially a bit of a selling point for it, given that quite a lot of people are like me and don't like it. But yeah, I, I, I think it's at least a few years away um, before we'll see that. Um, why don't we wrap up with a last couple of questions um, and I like this one from uh, Yana at Yana WD on Twitter. Jonas obviously rotates a lot, but what do you think the ideal midfield looks like for Arsenal when Jordan Nobbs is back from injury? I pondered on this forever when you sent me the question. <laughs> it's really hard. I think mostly, I think that's that's kudos to all the new signings that that's making this decision really, really hard because I think, Last season, I think flat out, I could have said that Jordan Nobbs, Kim Little and Leo Walti was kind of my favorite trio midfield. Now this year, you know, you have to add Frida Manum and Manu Abuchi into that. And what I like about how hard this decision is, is that, you know, each player offers something very, very different. Um, and you can't make a decision because of that. You know, you have, if you if you want a playmaker, if you want someone good at dribbling, then you put Mane Wabuchi, but then you take out Jordan Nobbs, who's also, who has that creativity, um, that kind of calmness and kind of control in the midfield that wants to control the tempo and is able to kind of lead the way through the midfield. Um, then you have, and then you have Kim Little, who's just Kim Little, who does everything. You know, you don't want to take her out of the midfield ever, but then do you want to put in someone like Frida Manum, who has a bit more speed, who has a bit more, um, kind of finesse to go forward in that attacking phase of what Jonas wants to do. And then do you want to put her in for Leah Walti? Do you want to leave her for that? You know, give Leah a little bit of rest. Um, so I don't think I can decide. I think, I mean, honestly, I really can't decide. I think I can, can I just put a midfield of five? Uh, that'd be great. <laughs> um, I can't, it just, I think it's very dependent on how Jonas wants to play and, and how that, you know, I, as I mentioned, you know, Leo Walti, Jordan Obbs and, and Kim was kind of my set trio as of last season, but with these new players and the way they've in, been interlinking with the attack in particular has really, really impressed me. Um, but I think I would say that I think Frida Manum would be in my midfield. Yes or yes. I think, I think I'll stick with, with one play, I'll, I'll just put one player in my midfield, but that's fine. <laughs> um, the rest can be very, very, very game dependent, but I think Frida Manum has kind of been my favorite signing so far. Yeah, I, I spoke to Jonas a bit about Frida because she's played so many different roles kind of tactically. She's she's played as the six ahead of Leah Volti. She's played as an eight, as a 10. She's kind of done that thing against Chelsea where she almost came over to left back quite a lot to create overloads there. She's incredibly intelligent. I think she gives the midfield power as well. And that's one thing I think it's lacked in the last couple of seasons. I, I, I might duck the question a little bit as well, just by saying, you know, those five players that you mentioned, any three combination of, of those five players. I, I have to say, I, I think Jordan is a player that we're sleeping on a little bit in terms of her talent and her ability because of the injury she's had. And, a stop start kind of couple of years for her and with the pandemic and everything, I think she's such a good player. And I think people have forgotten what a great player she is. 
And in terms of doing the high press and stuff like that and making those runs in from midfield, I think that, you know, once she gets back fit and playing again, I think we'll remember what a great player Jordan Nobbs is. You know, Leah, I mean, Leah Volti, say, would probably be not quite an automatic pick because, um, you know, Jonas seems to like playing Frieda um, as a six as well. And, and she looks perfectly good there. And, you know, Mane Iwabuchi can play in the wide positions as well. So, and and I think the reality is, regardless of, of, of our preferences, that is what will happen. Those those five players will rotate those spots. It, it looks like, I mean, Freedom Arnhem started every game so far. So's Kim. It looks like Kim is a bit of a lock um, there for Jonas. Like, even given the fact that she was at the Olympics, she's started every game so far, whereas Freedom Arnhem wasn't. Um, and therefore, you'd, you'd think that maybe uh, Frida being young and, and not having been at the Olympics might have played, you know, front-loaded her minutes a, a fair bit. But yeah, the, the others I just really see rotating just out of necessity, maybe tactical necessity. But if you were to put me on the spot and say, let's say they're all fit, which um, I don't think they will be for Man City, but let's say everyone's completely fit, firing for Man City at home, I think I'd I'd go with Leah Volti, Kim Little and Jordan Nobbs as my three. I might then have Mane Iwabuchi in the front three, but um, that, that would be incredibly harsh on Frida, but for, uh, Frida would come in for the next couple of games. Like I, I really do think that's one thing we're going to have to get used to, that there will only be a couple of players that you can say, like maybe Leah, Kim, Viv, maybe Manu Zinsberger, it looks like he's made a decision that she's the number one, that those are the only four players you will definitely see, you will definitely see in most games. I think the rest is is really going to be a movable feast and I think that's the right way to go. Um, why don't we finish with one last question? Um, and I, I guess on a similar vein from uh, Aiden, and sorry, Aiden, I'm probably going to butcher your surname as well, but uh, do you know what? I'm just going to say your Twitter handle because um, it looks like an Irish surname and I know I'm terrible with those. So it's at Aidan um on Twitter. Given how our wingers and attacking midfielders have started so well, will Jordan Nobbs and Caitlin Ford find it difficult to break back into the team once they return from injury? I think you've kind of started on that question there, Tim, when you were talking about Jordan. I think, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's going to be hard for them um, just because of the quality, but it's about that rotation again. It's it's the matter of they're not, you know, it is, you know, Joe had his favorites and kind of you, you could predict a lot of the lineups mostly, but I think it is Jonas is kind of going to really, really heavily rotate um, based on the opposition, based on kind of the, the load overall of not just, you know, game to game, um, but just overall knowing that you're going to play Barcelona you know, midweek, the weekend before that, you want to rest a few players, for example. You know, it's just like that balancing all that workload of of, of, of everything. Um, I think you'll definitely see a lot of more rotation. So I don't think, you know, players like Jordan Nobbs and Caitlin Ford don't really have to worry about not getting minutes. They're going to get minutes uh, no matter what. I think that's just a given. It's just a matter of on the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not much we can say really, but I, I don't think... You know, as Tim mentioned, I don't think there's going to be a set starting 11. There's not going to be a set starting uh, players of, of what Jonas wants to see. I think it's going to be dependent. And then you have players like Jordan Nobbs and Caitlin Foran who are definitely going to be starting a lot of games, who are going to be on the bench a lot of games. Um, and that's just, that's not down to them individually. It's just down to 
kind of the the situation that Arsenal find themselves in. But I mean, they're definitely going to be walking into a starting eleven no matter what. Um, but then again, you know, the next game they're going to be benched. So it's I don't think they're going to have a problem, especially with the style play and kind of what, what to mention in terms of what he wants to see, you know, playing players tactically on the high press on, you know, you have someone like Jordan Nobbs who's going to be really, really vocal and kind of lead the high press. Um, you know, you're going to hear on the pitch in Bournemouth when, when, if, you, if you've never heard Jordan Nobbs before on the pitch, um, she's going to be a really big factor in, in kind of pushing everyone up into that high press. And then obviously Caitlin Ford, as you mentioned earlier, obviously she can replace Viv in that number nine role. So they're not going to have a problem going back into kind of having a big role on the team. Yeah, completely agree. I, I think I'd just add two things to that. I guess there's there's two questions. One, whether he'll look to manage Jordan Nobbs um, in terms of her fitness, because obviously she's had a few injuries in the last couple of seasons and whether he takes a view on that. Although Jonas was asked a similar question about Jen Beattie this weekend, uh, given the injuries she's had and the cancer diagnosis she had last year. And he kind of said, look, one of the nice things for some of these players is that I've come in with no preconceptions and I'm just looking at what they deliver um, in front of my eyes and what Jen is delivering in front of my eyes is great. So she's playing. Um, so he, he might take a view with Jordan like that. He might be able to manage it. I mean, there'll be rotation anyway. I, I think the other thing, um, perhaps without the focus on these two specific players that I'm interested to see. I'll be interested to see if there are any players perhaps that he inherited that he just doesn't end up taking to for whatever reason. And, and, I, and I don't know really who they'll be um, as yet. I mean, he hasn't played Leah Volti uh, quite as much, which is not to say she's been out in the cold or anything, but he's rotated her a couple of times and we're not used to seeing that um, with Leah. But whether that's just because he really likes Freedom on him, I, I, you know, there are a few things I think to keep an eye on. And one thing I'm interested in is whether as the season goes on, there just ends up being a player because it happens, right? It happened to Beth Mead with Hager Risa, for example. She went from being a lock first choice in the 11 under Phil Neville, the manager changes and she's not in the squad anymore. That that with the best will in the world just happens sometimes. So um, I, I'm not saying I think there will be a player, but it will be interesting to see whether, you know, there's a player he inherits who thinks, hmm, not really my my type of player. And it happened under Joe as well. Like Joe kind of took Sorry Van Vienendahl out um, and she was very popular. Um, Dominique Janssen was sold. These were popular players who were playing a lot. Sometimes players and, and managers, you know, it just doesn't work. So um, I'd be interested to see if that does happen with any of the Arsenal players. But I, I don't particularly have anyone in mind um, at the moment. But anyway... That's um that's that's a good sixty minutes uh, worth of content for you there. So why don't we draw it to a close there? Um, we'll be back with we'll do these mailbags monthly, I think, and we'll throw in we'll pepper in other pods on top. So we've got something else in the works, hopefully a little bit Tobin flavored um, again for hopefully the end of this month, which we're working on. Um, but otherwise, we'll do another mailbag in October, and we'll keep doing the kind of two podcasts a month. Um, first of all, thanks very much as ever to my co-host Alex, who you can find on Twitter at what's your Twitter handle again? At it's at Alex Ibaceta23. At Alex Ibaceta23. Right. Uh, my name's Tim Stillman, and you can find me on Twitter if you want at Stillberto. And we will be back with another episode very shortly. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for your questions, and we'll speak to you again soon.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.